You are tuned to Morricone Island and WFMU. I'm your host, Devin Levins, here every Tuesday from 8 to 9 p.m. playing the soundtrack hits. This week is, unfortunately, another sad one. We lost the great Angelo Badalamenti, internationally sought-after composer, most well-known for the many themes of Twin Peaks, the David Lynch 90s TV drama series, along with the five other films that he uh, scored for Mr. Lynch, starting with Blue Velvet. He had passed away uh, just last Sunday, surrounded by his family at home, in Lincoln Park, New Jersey, at the age of 85. As a tribute, I wanted to uh, broadcast an interview I did back in 2014, uh, one Sunday afternoon, I believe it was March, March 16th, 2014, and two of the programmers from Nighthawk Cinema joined me, uh, John Woods and Karen Coleman, as they were in the middle of a Battle Amenti film series of uh, films that he had scored over the years throughout his career. And Mr. Battlemente arrived with his wife of, I believe, over 50 years, dressed to the nines. They were including this interview as part of their Sunday afternoon and evening date night. So they ended up afterwards going to their favorite Italian restaurant in the East Village from back in the day and ended up at Stomp taking in a show. So we'll let uh, Mr. Badalamente speak for himself, but uh, our condolences here to his family and close friends, and we'll put this up on the Morcone Island Interviews podcast as well. This was a two-hour interview. He was very gracious with his time. We'll see what kind of music we can uh, squeeze in. Enjoy uh, my discussion from 2014 with Angelo Badalamente. In studio guest, a New York native, Angelo Badalamente. You maybe most likely know him from uh, his association and collaborations with David Lynch, from uh, starting from Blue Velvet, Twin Peaks, as well as Wild at Heart and Lost Highway, Mulholland Drive, Straight Story. But not just David Lynch. There's uh, City Lost Children. There's things you wouldn't expect. There's there's soundtracks that predate the Lynch days. There's a whole uh, rich history, I think, that we're going to try to get to the bottom of. How did you get involved with David Lynch in the first place? I met David, actually, he was shooting uh, the movie uh, Blue Velvet and the last scene from Blue Velvet. And I was home, I lived in New Jersey, and I received a a phone call from my uh, good friend Peter Runfalo and also friend Fred Caruso who were involved with Dino De Laurentiis and Blue Velvet. They were line producers of the film. Peter then said, Angelo, uh, there's a situation uh, in North Carolina. They're shooting the last scene, and David Lynch is having some trouble with Isabella Rossellini, and she's not happy. She has to sing a vocal, the titled song, Blue Velvet. And we've had people working with her, and she's not happy with uh, the people she's working with, and David is not happy with her vocal rendition. Uh, I know you work with singers, you know, can you get on a plane tomorrow, come to North Carolina, Wilmington, North Carolina, 
I said, no, no, I, I, I really can't do it. And I said, that's ridiculous. You don't need me. There are so many uh, uh, pianists and people who could, who could work with a singer. You know, and besides, I have to buy a, a used car, a very used car. I had saved up 800 bucks, you see, to buy a used car. And I, and I needed that car desperately. They said, oh, no, Angela, really, you know, I really think you should do this. I really, really think you should do this. And Peter and Fred talked me into it. I get on a plane, and I go to North Carolina, and there I meet with Isabella Rossellini, uh, with Fred Caruso, and we walk into a room with a piano, put a little cassette on the piano with Isabella, and I start working with her for about two to three hours, and I'm working on the song Blue Velvet. And now we record it on a cassette, take it over to uh, David Lynch with Isabella, uh, meet him, say, hello, David, this is Angelo, blah, 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 hello, nice to meet you. He puts on the phones, he listens, and David said, this is peachy keen. <laughs> this is the ticket. And, you know, I'm, I'm from Brooklyn. And so I asked Fred, I said, what does is, what is Peachy Keen, that's the ticket, mean? He said, he absolutely adores it. And um, so, so that, that was the start. Uh, David later on he has told people what he heard on that cassette with me playing piano and Isabella singing. He said he could have put that track in the movie and she, she would have just uh, dubbed over it that it was that good. So that was a, a, a great start with David. Mm -hmm. The second thing that happened uh, was that uh, Dina De Laurentiis did not want to pay $50,000 for a song by the Cocteau Twins that David loved. David's favorite song of all time and David's favorite recording, Song of the Siren, it was called. Oh, yeah. Dino didn't want to pay $50,000 for the sync rights, the rights to use that track. So he tells Fred, why don't you ask this piano player <laughs> to uh, maybe he can write a song to replace it. Right. So Fred comes to me. He said, "Do you think you can, you know, write something like in that style?" And I said, "Well, you know, um, you know, I can, but I, I would need a lyric." I said, "How about getting David Lynch if he agrees to write a lyric?" David acquiesced, but he only, only would do it because to pacify Dino, because uh, he, he he knew that. Uh, 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 he, he would not like it. It was ridiculous for him to write a lyric, me to write music to replace what he loves most. <laughs> the bottom line was Isabella comes to New York, brings me a little piece of paper. On it, it's written by, by David called Mysteries of Love. Mm -hmm. And I'm reading this lyric. Sometimes a wind blows and you and I float into the world and kiss forever in a darkness. And, and I'm looking at this lyric and I'm saying, my God, this is not a song lyric. I mean, there, there's no rhymes, there's no hooks. I mean, you know, I, I write some songs, you know, I, you know I'm looking for a hook. I, this, is, this is like, you know, just poetry. It's a tone poem. What am I going to do? You know, what kind of music? So I called David and I did the right thing to do. I said, David, um, very interesting lyric you sent me. Uh, it's really, uh, it really is something, you know. Uh, it's quite something. Uh, uh, now let me ask you, David, uh, what kind of uh, music do you hear for it? And David says, well, Angelo, he said, just, just make it, make it, you know, make it soft, like, like a soft sea at night. And ju just let it float, just let it float high up into the heavens. <laughs> I said, oh, I see. 
Oh, I see. Of course, I didn't see. I didn't have a clue. <laughs> anyway, the bottom line is I worked on that lyric and never changed a single word and the song was Mysteries of Love. Uh, I then played it for David. He absolutely loved it. He said, find me a singer that sings like an angel. I knew Julie Cruz, got her in. Julie Cruz then sang Mysteries of, uh, Mysteries of Love. Uh, Julie Cruz was a singer I knew in a show, and she did this very angelic voice. Just, From Broadway, yeah. or off-Broadway? Yeah, she was, she was off-Broadway theater that I knew her. And she came and she says, I think I can sing like an angel. And as soon as I heard her, I got to tell you, when I heard Julie, it was love at first sound. Yeah. <laughs> and she sang Mysteries of Love. Mysteries of Love. You actually, not only did you write that music, but you, you had a small little role in Blue Velvet, right? <clears throat> yeah. I was working, of course, with Isabella. And David said, why don't you play a piano for Isabella in the movie in Blue Velvet? There's a couple of scenes. And since you work with her, uh, I said, fine, great. You know, everybody wants to be, you know, on camera, you know. It's, it's like a dream just to have their face. You've always heard people say, oh, to directors, can I just walk across, you know, <laughs> you know, shoot anything. Anyway, kind of funny, and I, I was the same way. Now, I'm playing piano for Isabella, and it's just on the stage. Uh, Isabella, right in front of the piano, and me at the keyboard. And you'll see this. When you, when you watch Blue Velvet, you'll see the scene. I'm playing the piano, and Isabella is singing. She wore blue velvet, right? Mm. And I'm playing, but I'm noticing that Isabella is blocking me out as I'm playing. <laughs> and, you know, blocking me out. I'm saying, oh my goodness. So as I'm playing, I start leaning to the right. I start leaning to the right. And, and I keep playing, and she sings. And for some reason, she moved over a little to the right, too. And, and she's blocking me out. So I, I really twist and turn my body, and I'm playing that way. And David Lynch says, cut, cut. And Isabella says, oh, oh what's the matter, David? Uh, am I doing something wrong? Am I singing not correctly or OK? Isabella, you're doing so beautifully. You sound great. You look great. But Isabella, stay in one place because Angelo is going to fall off the piano stool. <laughs> now, that's a true story. Yeah. And, and if you see Blue Velvet, I want you to know that I got my, my puss in it, you know, by turning and twisting. Yeah. Anyway, that's a little comedy thing, but it's true. So that, that obviously led to Twin Peaks, which became a huge international success. Uh, maybe more so outside of the United States, at least in Europe and Asia. Then, so here in the United States, it had a huge following, and um, I assume that's sort of what opened up all kinds of doors for you after that. Absolutely, you you were approached by Paul McCartney or something yes, relating well, to Twin Peaks. It's, it's actually, this is a wonderful story. I got a call from Paul McCartney's office, and they said, Angelo, uh, Paul uh, uh, would love for you to come out to the Abbey Road Studios and work with him and do an arrangement, orchestration on something he's working, but he really wants your Twin Peaks sound and input into what he's working. So, And it's just one piece of, of material that, that he would love to have with an orchestra. He'll give you a full orchestra at Abbey Road. 
and it'll just be you know you and Paul and the engineer and the orchestra. I said, I'm sorry, I can't do it. I said, I'm working on a project and I, I just don't have the time. But we'll f fly you first class, you know, British Airlines, and we'll give you a five-star hotel, you know, take care of everything for you. No, no, I'm sorry. Uh, I, I don't have the time, I, you know, and you know, I just got to get, you know, I, I can't get away. I tell you what, I said, ask Paul to buy me a Concord ticket. If he buys me a Concord ticket both ways, um, I can just zoom out in two hours, do the thing, work with Paul at Abbey Road, take the Concord the next morning, and boom, Be nobody right knows I'm yeah. even gone. Yeah. Sure enough, Paul sends me a Concord ticket. I go out to the Abbey Road Studios. Fantastic. There's Paul. Now, I don't have to tell you this was a thrill being yeah, of course. <laughs> you know, Abbey Road. And, and just with Paul, who, uh, who, by the way, is the most humble, beautiful guy you'll ever meet. Mm -hmm. And anyway, so uh, I'm, uh, I'm, the orchestra's there, and I'm rehearsing the orchestra, and everything's sounding fine and great with the engineer. And Paul comes over. He says, Angelo, stop the orchestra. i got to tell you something. He said, i got to tell you this story, and it's a true story. And the story is this. He said, I was invited by the, the, Queen's, uh, uh, the Queen's office to uh, perform 40 minutes of my music to help celebrate her birth at Buckingham Palace uh, for her birthday. And I was thrilled. So now, there I am at Buckingham Palace. I've got my band on, on a stage. And I'm about to go on. And the Queen comes by and she says, Mr. McCartney, it was just so lovely to see you tonight. And Paul says, well, your highness, uh, I'm so delighted, I'm so thrilled, I'm so honored that you've invited me to perform and to help celebrate your <laughs> birthday tonight. Mr. McCartney, I'm so sorry, but I can't stay. Oh, Paul says, oh, 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 uh, 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 no, but, but I'm going on. No, you see, Mr. McCartney, it's five minutes of eight. I must go upstairs and watch Twin Peaks. <laughs> Now, Paul turns around and he punches me on my left arm. By the way, it's still black and blue after all these years <laughs> with a few uh, special uh, Scottish words. Yeah. <laughs> still haven't washed it. Still <laughs> and, and now that was from Paul's mouth, you know, to, to my ears. I, I don't think you can get a better anecdote than that. Yeah, yeah. Why don't we play a little Twin Peaks uh, well, or, or The Fire Walk With Me, which is the film that came out right after the success. But it's sort of, this is the prequel, right? Of yeah, right. The where everybody came from. And uh, so with that, you even, there were cast of characters involved with Fire Walk With Me. Um, but one was uh, Little Jimmy Scott. Jimmy yeah. And then Julie Cruz. Yeah, Julie Cruz. Yeah, Voice of Love. Well, I, I could just tell you, uh, Devin, that the little Jimmy Scott, who, who sang in Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me, uh, he is really one of the truly great jazz vocalist interpreters. Every jazz artist knows this man, just incredible. Um, and then Julie sings in uh, Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me, the Voice of Love, which is really the most chilling vocal delivery. Uh, imaginable. I mean, just uh, amazing. We're here with our guest composer, Angela Badalminti, and also two of the programmers from Nighthawk Cinema who are right in the midst of an Angelo Badalminti film series at Nighthawk Cinema. John Woods had a question for Actually, our... Yeah, I do. I would like to, to ask if uh, the early stuff, Law and Disorder, and then particularly Gordon's War, like, how did you... He first got into composing, and how did uh, how that happen for you initially? Uh, actually, um... I was I was up at a, a place where a friend of mine who was a producer and a lyricist, Al Elias, 
was working at a place called Palomar Pictures, which was the entertainment wing of Bristol Myers, an office on Park Avenue. And I used to write with Al, uh, and we were working on an NBC children's series, Saturday, Saturday morning series, uh, called It's Brand New World, and uh, we were also working on a Martin Luther King television uh, uh, special, and a, a bunch of uh, different projects. And other, other people, of course, were, were doing films, one of which was Ossie Davis, that great orator, writer, brilliant first-class man, of course, you know, married to Ruby D. And uh, Asi was directing uh, a film. He's just finished directing for a film called Gordon's War, which was a black exploitation film you know, in the genre of Superfly. And I had seen a script uh, on someone's desk, Gordon's War, and I picked it up and I read the script, and I, I just was inspired, and I went over and, and I wrote a couple of themes. Just you know, from reading the script, I was inspired by it. Anyway, Asi was was in the office, and and I see him. I said, "Hey, Asi, you know, you, you finished your movie, yeah?" He said, uh, "And I'm really excited. Um, I've got Barry White is going to uh, do uh, uh, the music for the score, and um, finishing the film, the editing." I said, "Well, that's fantastic." I said, uh, "But Asi, I got to tell you something. Um, I just read your script, and I, you know, I was inspired, and I wrote a couple of themes." He said, "Oh, Angelo," he said, "You know, I'm sorry, but number one." I got Barry White, you know, who's hot as hell. I don't have to tell you. It's a 20th Century Fox artist. It's a 20th Century Fox film. It all kind of makes sense. I said, come on, Ossie, let me just play you what I have. And he's such a class guy. He, you know, reluctantly, he came over to the piano, and I sat down. I said, now, here's the girl whose husband is away uh, in the Army, and the pushers on the street got her all overdosed and drugged and died as a result of all of this. And I said, here's a theme for her. And I sang, I was a child of tomorrow, born in a world of yesterday, a grown-up daughter of sorrow, till you came and took the herd away, and I became a woman, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He says, wow, he says, wow. That's so right on. That's so touching. It's that, that, so beautiful. I said, and, and Asi, all the pimps on the streets, the hookers, the drug pushers at night in Harlem, I have a song relating, especially to the drug pushers. And it would go like this. Come on and dream some paradise. Dream, dream, dream of paradise. The time is right. Grab a little happiness tonight. And on and on and on. Really funky, you know. He's, God, man. Woo! He says, I see it. That that could be funky and good. He says, but you know, you know, this is a film with all brothers. You know, everybody's a brother in the film, Angelo. And I said, I see, I do understand that. But I got to just tell you something. You like the music, right? Yeah, I love it. Uh, you know. I said, I see. I'm half Sicilian. If you look at the map of Sicily, the bottom of Sicily and the tip of Africa, you could take seven strokes in that water and you get from the bottom of Sicily to the tip of Africa. Now, Asi, I may not be your brother, but I'm certainly your cousin. <laughs>
<laughs> he said, man, you just sold me. He said, do the film. He says, I have to leave now. I have to call Barry White and give him the bad news. That was your entry into film scoring. You had another follow-up right after that to another film you did, right? Yeah, <clears throat> the film called Law and Disorder um, with Ernest Borgnine and Carol O'Connor. Once again, it was up at Palomar Pictures. I just saw a script on a desk. Same thing. I read the script, and I went into the room, and I wrote a couple of themes. The director was, was a Czechoslovakian, Ivan Pasa, and uh, a very creative, innovative uh, director. And uh, he was around, and I grabbed Ivan. I said, Ivan, you know, I read your script. And once again, he finished shooting the film. And as I, I said, I, I wrote some music. He said, you know, I have, I have somebody in mind to, once again, it's, it's like the Ossie David story. <laughs> but I said, come on, Yvonne, let me just play you what I have in mind. Once again, being a gentleman, reluctantly, he came into the piano room, and I sat down on the piano. There were two auxiliary cops. Here's a theme for Ernest Borgnine, and I play this one theme. Okay. Now, here's a theme for Carol O'Connor, the other auxiliary cop, and I play it. And he liked both themes, and then I said, now I'm going to show you how, how I can take these two themes and put them together and marry them and those motifs can be used throughout the film because they're such kind of like brothers in a way he said this is incredible i love it i love it i love it he said you know i i think i want you to do this score he said you know you caught me just in time i said why he said i'm was just going downstairs to the mailbox and he reached into his pocket and he had a letter on his inside and it was addressed to a guy named Aaron Copeland. <laughs> Can you believe it? And, 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 uh, and Yvonne takes the letter and rips it up and puts it in the garbage pail. Can you imagine? And hires you. And, the and most, hires me. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the most the respected American composer yeah, I mean, the, the at that great, time. The great American, Aaron Copeland. I mean, forget about it. And, but when he heard the music, he just saw that that was right for his movie and... And that was that. And besides, I'm sure I was a lot cheaper than Aaron Copeland. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> but anyway, Worked that, that's, that's, once again, it's, it's really being, uh, you know, a bit aggressive. But, you know, it, it's a good thing for, you know, for young composers all to also to know, you know, sometimes you got to kind of reach out that way and do things on spec. Always do things on spec. Uh, don't, you know, especially starting out. Starting out. Work, work with any director, you know, uh, work with as many directors as you can, young directors, for no money. You know, if they don't have a, a dime, to, you know, forget about it. Don't worry about anything. Just establish a relationship with these people. Some of these directors are going to do great things. And, and then you have a relationship with them, and God knows where that could lead. So, right. you know, just, just don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to give in right. the early days. Uh, the worst thing you can do is want to hold on to everything and get nowhere. Like, I want to hold on to all my publishing when maybe a, a, a Warner Brothers record says, well, I'll, I'll let you do the score if you give me the publishing. And I hear some young composer saying, I'm not giving away the publishing. Mistake. Yeah. Give it away. Your time will come where if things become successful, you know, you'll, you'll make it up tenfold. How, how did you get into music? Like, what well, kind of kid were you? You're from, yeah, well, from you know, the I, area. I, I started, uh, you know, ben, Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, born and raised in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. I was eight years old. I was given piano lessons. Everything was fine. I'm now about 10 or 11, and I'm 
I have to after school practice the piano, and I'm looking out the window. Who's playing stickball? Who's who's playing stoop ball? Who's playing Johnny on the Pony? Boys, girls, throwing a football, touch football, hitting a stickball. How many sewers? You know all those things from Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, and they're all having fun. So I go to my father and I said, Dad. I hate music. I hate it with a passion. You know, I don't like music. It's, it, it's not for me, and it's getting me very upset. And my father says, okay, let's quit. You don't have to take lessons anymore. The reason he said that, uh, he would save $5 a week, you see, from a teacher. Things are tough. Right. And that 5 bucks a week meant a lot. And he wasn't thinking, you know. He wasn't so, a musician himself? No, no he, was, he, he sang, but the $5 was more important, you see, right. at that day and age than anything to him. And so I was thrilled. Now I played ball and I was out in the street. I had fun to get the piano and practice. And my brother comes home from the Army. He's on furlough. My brother Steve, older trumpet player, who happened to be a wonderful jazz trumpeter, plays you know, in the style of Miles Davis and Dizzy Gillespie and... And Steve said, Angela, how are your piano lessons? I said, oh, no, Steve, you see, I went to Dad, and I told him I hate music. Music's just not for me. Uh, I, don't, I don't take lessons anymore, Steve. I'm just enjoying having fun with my friends. Oh, really? Well, we're going to do a change about that. <laughs> what do you mean? He went to my father, and he reprimanded him. And before you know it, I was forced to take piano lessons again. <laughs> Took piano lessons again for another year. Now, I'm in like sixth grade or seventh grade and I find that when I'm in school I sit at the piano in the music room or in the auditorium playing piano and I'm playing all of a sudden I'd be by myself one or two girls would sit next to me I say hey mm, this is pretty cool you know I'm playing and then they're, they're ooing and eyeing, right and I'm playing so then I went home, and I practiced more, and I found the more I practiced, and the better I got, more girls would be coming over and sitting next to me. Well, that was the end of that. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> I you know, I mean, needless to say. Uh, and then, of course, now I'm in you know, junior high school. I'm, I find that I'm just writing original instrumentals on weekends. I'd be 8 o'clock in the morning at a piano, maybe even with a cup of coffee on the piano uh, in, in Bensonhurst the home and I would be just writing instrumentals I just loved composing different in different styles and genres even at a young age and that must have you know said something about it uh, I went to college I went to the Eastman School of Music I, I was actually a French horn major I studied the French horn uh, as a major instrument and the reason why I studied French horn originally was one of the junior high school teachers said if he studies the French horn and plays it He's, number one, he's got a good ear. That instrument needs a good a person with a good ear. And then he can probably get a scholarship to the finest a music college at, at the time. So I was given the French horn. I played. I uh, then uh, got into the Eastman School of Music on full scholarship, which, is, which was great, in Rochester. I stayed there for two years. I played, of course, orchestral music, and I studied some composition and theory, all those things that one does. Then I went to the Manhattan School of Music, and I got my bachelor's and master's. But once again, always doing music, and always working in music, working with singers and dancers. And when I was 14 years old, I started playing piano in what they call the, the Catskill Mountains, the Borscht Circuit, mm -hmm. the Jewish Catskill Mountains. And I played in all the various hotels every summer 
I don't know how my mother and father let me out of let the house. Let you do it, but yeah. At 14 years old, working from 9 to 3, you know, with <laughs> booze there and, you know, some of those funny kind of cigarettes at that time. <laughs> anyway, even at the age of 14, uh, being away from home for all that time, and can you imagine... So I did that, and, and I, I played piano for all the shows, singers, dances, always doing arranging and orchestrations, wow. and always composing, because I love to do it. And, and so graduated from college, that was it. But I knew I didn't want to be a French horn player. I knew I didn't want to be in an orchestra playing horn. The, I, I knew there had to be something else. I didn't know what to do, so I got a, a, also a degree in education, and I went to Diker Heights Junior High School, in Brooklyn on 12th Avenue and 81st Street. And I taught school for five years wow. at Dyker Heights Junior High School and absolutely loved it. I started at the age of 22. What happened was, and I was gonna be a school teacher. That was it. I was happy. It was a beautiful thing. Kids would come to me, Mr. Badalamenti, can I wash your car today? Oh, well, I don't know. If only if you're a good boy today, <laughs> can you wash it or Joey's gonna wash it. Oh, but I wanna wash it. Anyway. I'm just going to give you a funny anecdote about uh, my first day at school. I was 22 years old. They gave me lunch, lunchroom duty. And there was this one kid. He was like 17 and a half, almost 18. He, he should have been 13 for, because he was one of the wild kids that got left back. And he was in the lunchroom, and he yelled out from across the lunchroom, Hey, Badalamenti! Now I'm 22 years old, my first day in school. Uh, you know, I've got all these kids in the lunchroom. What do I do? So I go up to him. I grab him under his necktie and I pull him up off the floor. I said, to you, it's Mr. Badalamenti. He said, oh, I didn't know you were married. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so I don't know what I'm in for, but anyway, the fact is I love teaching. He loved it. In the fifth year of teaching, I wanted to do a show with my kids and I didn't like what I saw in the repertoire. So I said, I'm gonna write an original musical and base it on uh, the Christmas Carol Dickens. I knew a lyricist who, who wrote all my lyrics like the, early on as, as, uh, as a team during uh, the years. And he sent me a, a script and lyrics, uh, Christmas Carol. I wrote, I wrote all the music. Had the show performed at Dyker Heights Junior High School. Very well received. The Board of Education hears about it. They come down to see it. They loved it. The Board of Education calls Channel 13 PBS and said, you got to see this show that this teacher has done with these junior high school kids at Dyke Heights Junior High School, PS201. Channel 13 comes down, they see the show, they came to me, said, Mr. Badalamenti, if you take these kids into our, our TV studios, put a little trio, a quartet together, and just, we'd like to videotape your show and show it Christmas Eve and Christmas Day for the next few years. I said, fine, <laughs> go in, we record the show, blah, blah, blah. And sure enough, <clears throat> after the show, what was on TV, I received a phone call that next day from a Frank Stanton, a publisher on 1674 Broadway. And he said, Mr. Badalamenti, I heard this music. I'd love to publish it. Would you come up and can we talk about it? So I went up to see him. Uh, in addition to wanting to publish it, he said, can you write instrumentals like Kurt Weill? And I said, yeah, I do instrumentals all the time. That's what I love to do. He said, can you write some and bring some to me? And then I want to talk to you about something. So I did, I wrote four or five new instrumentals in the style of Kurt Weill, and he hears it, he said, I really recommend you should resign from teaching. He said, I, I'll, I'll, I would like to take you in as my partner in the business. I'm 27 years old now. I'm single, by the way. And he said, 
I can only pay you 50 bucks a week. You know, he was a small time. He, you know, he just dealt with Muzak and Ready Tunes in England and all those kind of stuff. And a lot of children's songs, Captain Kangaroo and all of that. And as, as well as, as, as some other hit songs that he has, pop records. So I said, 50 bucks a week, but I'm making $200 a week as a school teacher. And I can retire when I'm 55 with a pension, right. you know? I said, I don't know. He said, he said, really, I really think you should do it. He said, I'll make you my partner, you know, and, you know. So I went to my principal. Her name is Mrs. Brennan, who recently retired uh, from the school after 50 years. She had years. a beautiful New York Times article not too long ago. Anyway, and I said, Mrs. Brennan, I really don't know what to do. I was offered maybe to resign from teaching and do music full time. She said, Mr. Battlementi, I hate to lose you. The kids hate to lose you. They, they, they really adore you. You're doing wonderful things, and you teach instrumental music, and you teach vocal music. You know, you cover all the bases. <laughs> but let me tell you something. I've known too many talented people in my life that never reached out and tried to pursue their dreams mm. for one reason or another. And that was it. I, I then you know, handed in my resignation and went with Frank. I, I just started writing and started getting some kind of peripheral hits, some you know pop things, and you placed you know, in Captain Kangaroo, played. right? And then, and then yeah, <laughs> I, as a matter of fact, I started writing a bunch of those songs for Captain Kangaroo, which was actually was network television, and network television on, on songs, uh, ASCAP paid the greatest mm. thing, so it made up for that fifty dollars a week salary when he could afford to pay me. And that was the start. So that everything developed, developed, developed and into these other stories. Right. One of your big early hits, that uh, something that you wrote, would, would be for Nina Simone, right? That's another wonderful, one, <clears throat> excuse me, a w- wonderful story. You know, I, I had written these songs with John Clifford, I Hold No Grudge and He Ain't Coming Home No More, and had a nice, beautiful, soulful feel. And I said... You know, who can I get to record these songs? I had no idea, you know, how you go about getting someone to record your song. And I, I, I let my fingers do the walking through the yellow pages, as they say, and I saw Nina Simone Enterprises on Fifth Avenue. So I had the, uh, the chutzpah <laughs> or the goal to say, I'm going to go up to that office and knock on the door, and maybe Miss Simone is there, and I'll play her my two songs, you know. Innocence, you know, and uh, what age are you at this? Pardon? This is sort of in your your twenties, your late twenties, or? Oh, uh, I think it was something, yeah, yeah. In, in in that period, and uh, give it a shot. So I, I go up, I knock on the door, and a man named Andy Stroud opens the door. He says, "How can I help you?" I said, "Well, I have a couple of songs I'd like to play for Miss Simone." <laughs> he said, "Oh well, uh, she's not in. Uh, she's out shopping." This is about Christmas time, uh, but you'll be in in about an hour, an hour and a half if you want to wait. By the way, Andy Stroud was her husband and also her manager. So I waited. Now, in walks Nina. Long, this is Christmas time, snow on the ground, New York City, beautiful New York City, Madison Avenue, Park Avenue, you know. Long, beautiful coat and a big shopping bag from Saks Fifth Avenue, right? And she comes in with with the package has her coat still on and, and Andy says to her uh, Nina this man would uh, young man would like to uh, play you a couple of songs sing you a couple of songs oh really and she comes up to me and she puts her, her face into my face and she says sing I said <laughs> I said oh Miss Simone uh, yes be happy to uh, I don't see your piano 
I don't have a piano. Sing. I said, but that, sing. I go, I hold no grudge. There's no resentment underneath. I'll extend the laurel wreath and we'll be friends. But right there is where it ends. She says, you have a lead sheet on that? You know, yes, Miss Simone. I go and I have, a, I have another. What, what's your other song? Old Stair, you look so high tonight. Climbing up with all my might. Well, I've got no heart to be, cause he ain't coming home no more. You have that lead sheet? Yes, give it to me. Yes, Simone. Give it the lead sheet. Oh, nice meeting you. Well, nice meeting you, Miss Simone. Right? I'm walking now at the door. The husband comes over to me. He said, Andy, at that time, my name was Andy Bedali at Cut It Short. <laughs> Andy, um, next Wednesday, Come to the A&R studio, 7th Avenue in New York. You're going to hear Nina recording with a full orchestra these two songs you just sang a cappella. <laughs> I said, are you kidding? He said, trust me. That fast. He said, trust me. He said, I know my wife. She loves those songs. <laughs> sure enough. So, 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 you know, she loves those songs. Now I'm on my way out, and I said to myself, man, oh, man, what an easy business this is. <laughs> Little did I know. <laughs> it ain't so easy. Yeah. Probably took me another two years to get another record, but if you know what I mean. But anyway, that's a great story, and it's a true story. John had a question for I actually just wanted guest. to uh, ask about working with David Bowie and how that came about and uh, what that experience was like. I received a, a phone call from the record company who were doing these uh, Red Hot and Rhapsody albums. Uh, actually, they were charity albums uh, to, to aid AIDS. And what it was, then the concept, they said, is uh, we do these albums and we want to make this one. The concept would be a George Gershwin songs and, but it has to be a collaboration of two people. And we would love for you to be one of those people and then, you know, have a singer uh, that you work with, uh, uh, you know, together on something of George Gershwin for the album. And I said, okay. I said, um, I'd like to pick my own Gershwin song. And, and they said, sure. So I picked A Foggy Day in London Town because I knew that I could take that song with its verse, uh, you know, there was a stranger in the city, and I can darken it up, and I can really do uh, an orchestration and open it up and, uh, you know, make it really Angelo Badalamenti. And so I did it, and I did a demo uh, of the track just on the synth just to show the uh, record company. And then, of course, uh, if, if they approved and liked it, I would go in with a full orchestra. And I did the vocal. Now, here's, here's another funny thing. I did the vocal on it as, as you know, on, on this, on the demo of the track. So they said, wow, we love this track so much. And now imagine when we get, you know, one of our, you know, a great singer and artist. And I said with a very straight face, well, I think I want to be the singer. And they said, Oh, 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 Angelo, I mean, you, you sound very nice, but, you know, we were thinking of, you know, you know, some other artist to collaborate with, and this is really a collaboration of two people. I said, well, I did collaborate, you know, very firmly. I did collaborate. Well, who'd you collaborate? You're not, you know. I said, I collaborated with George Gershwin. 
<laughs> and I said it with a straight face, and and they were stuttering and stammering. They didn't know what to do, and and uh, and I left the office, and I left it at that. And then they called me and they said, "No, Angela, we, you know we've had a meeting. We really do like the way you sing, but what if we we, we called some other people? All right, go ahead, but." Uh, do it. So now I'm in the recording studio, the Edison Recording Studios on 46th Street, where I was recording my album that, that I, uh, you know, co-wrote with Tim Booth of the group James, the great Tim Booth. And uh, we did an album called, for Mercury Records, uh, Booth and the Bad Angel. And I'm recording the orchestra uh, there uh, with Tim. And the phone rings and the engineer says, Angelo, there's a, there's a, a phone call for you. Uh, can you get it? I said, well, who is it? It's David Bowie. I said, okay, I'll get it. So I said to the band, take five. And I go into the engineer's room. Hey, David, how you doing? David said, Angelo, I, I know that, you know, I heard this track. Uh, this, this, has gotta, this is for me. I mean, I, I, I got to do this song. Please let me do the vocal on this song. I said, well, David, I, yeah, I, 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 I guess, you know, maybe you sing a little bit better than I do. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think, you know, I don't know if I quite said it like that. I said, but, but David, I, I'll tell you, you're probably the only guy, you know, that w makes sense. You know, I can see you're doing like kind of a dark sound and stuff. Okay. I said, you've got it. He said, I can't tell you how grateful I am. He said that, you know, you're going to let me do the vocal. The next morning, 7 o'clock in the morning at home, my phone rings. And I hear this static from, it's, Andrew, Andrew, <clears throat> yes, who is this? Oh, uh, well, I'm in, I'm in a car, I'm in Ireland. Well, who's calling? This is Bono. <laughs> Bono, Bono, how you doing, man? He says, Angelo, I heard a track that was sent to me of, of a foggy day that you did in, in an unbelievable style. I, you know, I am so busy. I'm, I'm on tour. I'm, I'm working on an album with my band. I've got 10,000 things. The last thing I wanted to do was hear something like this. Would you let me be the singer on this track? I said, Bono, man, I, it would be great, but I got to tell you, last night I confirmed it with Bowie. He said, well, he, he sings good, too. <laughs> and anyway, but that, that's, that's a true story. And of course, I worked with, with David Bowie, and he was a gem. And, and the, the recording was, you know, right. Foggy Day in London Town. It's kind of cool. We're getting to the end here. We have just a few more minutes. We have uh, The Butterfly from, uh, this is a collaboration. You've, you actually worked with the, the singer of The Del Cran Cranberries. Yeah, Dolores O'Riordan and I have been collaborating on, on some songs and recordings together. And um, one of which uh, was in the movie Ivalenko, uh, a thing called Angels Go to Heaven. And then we recently did this song. Uh, we did the song called The, the Butterfly, which is, is a new recording. Uh, we wrote the song together and kind of co-produced it. And um, it's, uh, th this particular track is, is slotted for a, a new film. It's called The Butterfly by Dolores O'Riordan of the Cranberries. Please go to angelobadalamenti.com. I could spell that, but we got valuable time to <laughs> to get to some more of this and, music. So and, you're and Badalamenti is only my first name. Yeah, <laughs> you're still working hard. Very hard. In uh, Stalingrad is your latest film that, that came out just a few weeks ago here in the United States. That's right. 
back in October in Russia, and it's the uh, the highest grossing film of all time for Russia. I guess the opening weekend, the f first two weeks, it's just huge. And I think maybe I read that it's the first 3D, IMAX 3D first film in Russian in history, history as well. Yeah. So a lot of firsts there. And uh, you're not normally thought of as an orchestral war, World War II dramas composer, right. but... Right. But you've done I've, some I've, film, I've done some, some war know, films. A, a very long engagement, which was First World War, but nothing heavy duty like this opportunity. How'd the Russians find you? This is, this is amazing. <laughs> the director, Fido Bondachok, who's number one director in Russia, called me and, and said, you know, I really want you to do the score for Stalingrad but, and, and record with the Moscow Symphony. And now this is a war where 20 million people were killed and you're talking about Germany and Russia, the famous battle in 1943, which was a turning point, actually, in, in the Second World War, a tremendous help to all the allies. Mm -hmm. And I knew it was going to be, you know, panzer tanks and gunfighting and, 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 and all those, you know, heavy-duty thing. And I'm saying, what a great opportunity for me to open up, you know, my, my classical chops, you know, because you kind of, you know, get pigeonholed in certain areas. People love a certain sound and, and all of that. Though I've done, you know, other orchestral pieces like, you know, the, the Beach and a Very Long Engagement and stuff like that and Cousins. But this is, was a great opportunity. And I said, yeah, I'll do it. I, and then I said to myself, in a, in a land of people like Shostakovich and, and Prokofiev and Igor Stravinsky and Peter Ilch Tchaikovsky, and Sergei Rachmaninoff, why is he calling a guy from Bensonhurst, Brooklyn? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, my God, I, you know, I didn't get it, you know, for the moment. But then, you know, you know, I, I thought about it a little, and obviously he heard something in some of the things I've done that said, you know, I want this guy to do it, you know, which was quite amazing. And then I thought about it, and I said, you know, there were a couple of things where where I've had certain kind of some Russian influence kinds of themes, but still done in my style. And actually, the main title of Blue Velvet has a little Russian flavor. Uh, the opening title of Mulholland Drive certainly has a, a Russian flavor. It really, you know, I think, I think it was a combination of, of that and, and other things that he heard that, you know, asked him to invite me to do the score. Anyway, I went to Russia uh, in late September and recorded with the 80-piece Moscow Symphony. Uh, I also uh, you know, wrote so many broad themes. I gotta tell you, this is really one of my favorite projects to date. It, uh, I had a tremendous passion for this, and uh, I loved it a, an awful lot. Also, you should know that the last piece of material Fido asked me to write was something very lyrical and heartwarming for a particular scene. And I wrote this uh, other theme. Uh, I had like seven major themes. And we got a singer, Anna Netrepko, who's the, uh, you know, the, the great soprano, a Russian soprano. But she opened up the Metropolitan Opera this past season in Eugene Onega, uh, Eugene Onegin. And she's just a fantastic singer. And she heard uh, what I wrote, and she, wa she wanted to record it. And I took her into a studio in New York, and I recorded it on it. And I just got to tell you about her personally. This this lady is not a prima donna, you know. There's just she's just so down to earth and and just so beautiful. I I, re, I really like her an awful lot. And so she also she then recorded uh, the second theme. The first one is 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 a finale 
uh, in the film, and it's all hell breaks loose with trumpets, trombones, you know, bass clarinets, and triple bass, uh, uh, you know, bassoons and horns. It's, it's just big string orchestra. And when it's called Goodbye Brothers, and then segue, we segue into Anna Natepko doing just with strings alone, uh, this lyrical theme that we use for the film. So maybe we can just jump right into uh, to something regarding uh, Jean-Pierre Junet. You you yeah, did Jean, a couple Jean, of films. Right, with him. Jean-Pierre Junet. First of all, you know, a very avant-garde and very hip uh, uh, director. Uh, he did Amelie and a bunch of things. Uh, Jean-Pierre had called me, and uh, he said, I've, "I've got this movie called The City of Lost Children." French, La Cite des Enfants Perdus. I said, what is it about and all of that? He said, let me send you storyboards. He sent me volumes of storyboards, and uh, it was incredibly uh, creative. Uh, looking at it, it was a world I'd never seen before, and, and that really attracted me. So I, I agreed to do the score. I worked on the score, recorded it, and then I was doing an album Mary and Faithful and I were doing an album. Her as an artist, we wrote all the songs together. It's called A Secret Life. And her vocals on this uh, songs, I've been really, it's a beautiful, beautiful album. And while I was doing City of Lost Children, Jean-Pierre said, you know, how about a song? So I went for the film. So I went to Marianne. I said, Marianne, why don't you do a lyric? Here's what the story's about. And she wrote, Who Will Take My Dreams Away, the lyric. And then I wrote the music. And it's in the film, and this song is it's still being played uh, literally around the world. Marion is the best. In honor of Philip Seymour Hoffman, uh, a late quartet, bidding farewell yeah, track. This, this was the closing on a late quartet uh, with Philip Seymour Hoffman and uh, Christopher Walken, Catherine Keener. And it was a quartet, you know, playing Beethoven's music primarily. And at the end, Christopher Walken's character has Parkinson's and has to stop playing, and this string quartet, uh, two violins, viola and cello, uh, play this bidding farewell. And uh, there are four characters in the play, and the music uh, of Beethoven, uh, of his string quartet, was a fugue, which is like four different parts. You establish a theme, then then there's a variation on it, and then another variation, another variation. Meanwhile, all four go together. I, I wrote these, each individual part for each of those characters, and it's very, very touching, especially to think uh, how great Philip Seymour Hoffman was uh, in this film, mm-hmm. one of the truly great actors of our time. Whatever you can play, uh, maybe one of my favorite pieces, which is a suite from inside the actor's studio. James Lipton says 500 episodes of that. Right. But You'll definitely recognize this when you hear it. <laughs> okay. Okay. And, and I thank this audience very much. And you young composers, man, uh, just... Put a smile on your face, take rejection with a smile, and do things on spec in those early days, and you're going to have a happy life. Thank you so much for your time.